a shitload of money. $63,000 a month on one Patreon? Yeah, hopefully it's promising, but we're dealing with everybody that's making a podcast I'm never right going to be as funny as Henry Zabrowski. Never say never. I'm never going to be as funny as Henry Zabrowski. But I think I'm marginally a better person. Yeah. So I'll just hold on to that and put that in my pocket. Can you play what we, we just said right now? Yeah, I, we should. Hello, this is Always Carry a Body Bag, and I'm your host, Dave Deluxe, sitting here with Lauren Ryan. Hello. We have a podcast for you, and we have a few shout-outs we want to talk about today. First, we want to say thank you to Bree for giving us this awesome name for our podcast. I don't know how I would have done it. I don't know how we would have done it without you. And also, happy belated birthday. Yes, happy belated birthday and props for the acronym. We're sticking with it. We're running with it. We love it. We love it. It's hella tight. And then the other thing that we need to shout out is our own Patreon. little self-promotion. We set up our Patreon, patreon.com slash ACA Body Bag. We have three tiers, the Ice Pit Crew, the Zodiac Decoders, and the Sausage Kings, which leads us into today's topic we're talking about. Anthony Pickton. <laughs> no, we're not talking about Anthony Pickton. <laughs> That's not know. even a person. That's not even a person. <laughs> we're talking about... Uh, his name just the sausage, the sausage king of San Leandro. Yeah. We're talking about we're talking about the sausage king of San Leandro. That's right, Stuart Alexander. Crazy MF. We're gonna get started. This is our second podcast. We were just talking about one of our favorite podcasts. Shout out last podcast on the left and how much those people make with their Patreon. Sixty three thousand dollars a month. Yeah. So we're expecting to be there in like two weeks, three weeks. Tell all your friends. Tell all your friends, tell all of them, tell your DoorDash people, tell your Uber drivers, tell your aloteros and your mom and everybody (laughs) that, you know, that you come in contact with, that you don't come in contact with because we're in quarantine. That's right. Don't come into contact with people. That's real bad. Tell the people that you come in six feet distance of. And, and internet contact with. And internet, because that is the future after this pandemic. No. It seems like it might no. be. That's 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 going to be the norm. No. But it's easier. So It's not. It's terrible. That's what we're going to stick with, and everybody's just going to be screens. No, I miss hugs. I want hugs. Don't touch me. I don't need a hug. You can hug Lauren all you want. <laughs> you can hug me you all you want. You can hug Lauren. I don't need a hug. All right, so you want to get into it? Let's do it. All right, so let's just set the stage. When health inspectors Jean Hillary, William Shaleen, and Thomas Quadro stood waiting in the Santos Linguisa factory on June 21, 2000, they expected to be met with hostility by fourth-generation sausage maker Stuart Alexander, the self-proclaimed sausage king. What they did not expect was for Stuart to calmly pull a gun from his desk and shoot each of them. After shooting the three health inspectors, Stuart went outside looking for the fourth, Earl Willis. Earl started running down the block while Stuart chased him down the street firing, but Earl was able to escape into a nearby bank. Stuart then calmly returned to the Linguisa factory, walked inside, and shot Hillary, Shaleen, and Quadros in the heads to ensure they were dead. In total, he fired over 20 shots. 
In the relatively small Bay Area town of San Leandro, this was a huge story, and the rumor mill churned with stories of dead inspectors ground into the sausage. Wow. Rumors fueled, at least in part, by Alexander's own professed fantasies. Everyone in town had grown up eating Santos Linguisa, which was once arguably the best linguisa in the country. I wish I could have tried their sausages. Lauren has tasted that sausage, said it was I have tasted that sausage. (laughs) (laughs) How did this once thriving business go from a jewel in the crown of the community to the grisly triple murder scene? I just want to say shout out to my hometown, San Leandro, real quick. The Dro. Yeah, I guess. That's that's what they call it, or they... Yeah, I I remember it as slang town, but nobody else does. I think I'm just getting old. That's some OG slang right there. Yeah. Well, maybe it was just me and my friends. <laughs> San Leandro was a really small industrial town at the time. There were a ton of factories there. There was a pencil factory that's now closed. The Ghirardelli Chocolate Factory is actually based in San Leandro. It smells like burning chocolate all summer. Yeah, you think... Embarcadero and their cool brick building where they sell the uh, sundaes and ice cream and stuff might have a little Oompa Loompa factory making your chocolates there, but it's not made in San Francisco. It's a lie. It's made in San Leandro. Yeah, it's a pretty colored, like, pistachio green building. Well, it's not a pretty building, but the color is cute. Que bonito. And then uh, the North Face factory was in San Leandro. I think it is still the Jansport factory was in San Leandro. And so it was a really industrial town with a lot of trains. You're, you're not Bay Area if you don't have anything North Face. That's true. I'm not Bay Area. I don't have, have anything, anything North Face. North face. <laughs> <laughs> also, in San Leandro, there's a lot of meat production. The SAG meat plant, S-A-A-G, SAG meat plant. And then uh, there's a, is it Lunardi's? There's a, there's a the, three or four meat plants in On San On the Leandro. border of San Leandro and Oakland, though, you can find the Dave meat plant. Your meat is only for me. Two. Two. You're not allowed to sell your meat. (laughs) I support you, babe, but that's going too far. So let's start with Stuart. Stuart Charles Alexander was born March 22, 1961. He was an Aries. He was born to Shirley Mae Perriott and Herman Tweedy Alexander, both Capricorns. Such a cute last name. Alexander? Tweedy. That That was his dad's nickname. Oh, okay. Tweety. Gotcha, gotcha. He comes across like a kind of like a mafioso type of guy, though, like cigar hanging out of the mouth, doing business, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back kind of guy. And that's guy. Tweety over there in the corner. Tweety. Stuart was the middle child of three sons and seems to have lived in his older brother's shadow. Friends and family have said that Tweety was extremely hard on Stuart. His mother said Tweety yelled at him all the time. She also said Stuart really wanted his father to love him, and he wanted to belong. Those close to the family described Stuart as having a short fuse, being resentful and combative, and having violent outbursts from a young age. He described his family as being just a bunch of people under one roof and not a loving family. Tweedy and Shirley had a difficult marriage and divorced when Stuart was 10 or 11 years old. Tweedy, our mafioso kind of guy was an incredibly successful businessman and had received accolades for his ability to produce a great product and sell it well, both locally and nationally. Retired health inspector Donald Pardini said Tweedy was so cooperative that he would hop over smoldering oak wood in a brick smokehouse the size of a walk-in closet to grab sausage links for federal meat inspectors. What a cool guy. I think you got to keep your feet moving a bunch. 
if you're walking in hot coals. <laughs> so it doesn't burn into your shoes. Tweedy was known to deal mostly in cash to take small loans from other business owners to cover gaps and pay them back promptly to maintain relationships. This is the, like, sort of, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. thing. He was flexible and could navigate the struggles of running a small food production company and work with government agencies that were enforcing guidelines. Yeah, he's been doing it for a minute, so... Pardini described him as, like, the kind of person who when he would come up against a new guideline from the government, he would figure out exactly what he needed to do to get it done and keep operating. And he he wouldn't focus on, he wouldn't get stuck on how unfair it was. And that was really Stewart's downfall, was that he would get really fixated on the unfairness of it or how specifically he needed to do it and how that just seemed impossible to him. He couldn't overcome those hurdles. Seems like he, he didn't want to hear anything Oh, yeah. He didn't want to hear anything from anyone about anything. Tweedy had a cult of personality in San Leandro, and people liked him a lot around town. It was his grandmother, Pia Santos, who founded the factory in 1921 with her husband, Antonio, in their basement. As it became successful, they took over the building next door to expand to a full factory operation, and everyone in the family worked there. Tweedy was the third generation to run the factory, and throughout Stewart's childhood and teenage years, his life, like everyone else in the family, revolved around the factory's operation. Outwardly, Tweedy was known for donating to charities and participating in local events. But privately, to his ex-wife and son Stuart and Stanley, he was known as a bully. Is that a surprise? This, like, charismatic guy around town treats his family like shit? No, you hear that a bunch. Uh, To me, that would be a Sunday morning. Pretty norm. Stuart's older brother, Stephen Alexander, a Leo, had been Tweedy's golden child and heir to the family business. He was said to be good-looking, charismatic, and hard-working. Tweedy brought him in from an early age to show him the ropes, and anyone could see he was a natural. Sadly, he died in a motorcycle accident at age 18 in 1977 when he lost control of his motorcycle on Lake Chabot Road and hit an oncoming car head-on two years before Stewart graduated high school. I drive Lake Chabot Road almost every day. Yeah, yeah. I wonder where the spot is where he went. People drive really fast on that road. Shirley May, Stuart and Stefan's mother, described their relationship as very close and said she didn't think he ever got over his brother's death. Stefan was the cool brother Stuart looked up to. She said they were inseparable. Stefan's death prompted Tweedy to begin grooming Stuart to take over, hiring him on at the factory. He was said to have little faith in Stuart to run the company and was frequently verbally abusive, telling him he'd never amount to anything. To him, Stuart could never do anything right. Stuart wanted to move out of his dad's house, but his father wouldn't pay him enough to do so, and the relationship was explosive. Yeah, see, that's how you get your sons to run a nice, tight-knit, well-run company. Treat them like shit. You treat them like shit, yeah. This is a thread that runs through a lot of these, um, like, a lot of these murderer stories that they had a parent who could really see that they were fucked up from from an early age, but then instead of helping them not be fucked up, the parent just treats them like shit and tells them how awful they are, like Ed Kemper's mom. Mm -hmm. She's like, man, I think my kid might molest my other kids, so I'm going to lock him in in the basement and tell him what a piece of shit he is. It's like the same thing. It's like becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Tough love. No, that is not what tough love is. (laughs) (laughs) No, you have kids. You got to love them. You got to tell them they're the best, and they won't go out and shoot four people in the fucking head. 
Yeah, well, maybe don't tell them they're the best in that way that they get delusional about their abilities, but tell them that they're great and they're capable of doing good things and then help them do those things. Just love them. At least, at a minimum. That's a low bar, right? Loving a kid. Stuart was also close with his younger brother, Stanley, a Taurus, and reportedly got in fights defending him in high school. No one had anything really nice to say about Stanley, but I didn't really think it was fair to trash him. You have brothers, though. Any fights that break out, brothers got your back. They can fuck you up, but nobody else can. This is a point of contention for me that some people do not have their siblings back or shit talk their siblings, and it is the easiest way for me to end a friendship with someone is seeing them shit talk their sibling. Because if you'll talk about your sibling in a fucked up way where other people can hear... What will you do to me, your non-sibling? Yeah, I'm not no, down. No, definitely. We, we've talked about this before. Little A-cab fact. Uh, Lauren and I are only children. We are only children. Oh my gosh, you're sharing personal information. We don't have any siblings. And time after time, I've seen brothers, I've seen sisters fight like UFC fighters. Beating the crap out of each other. Talking so much shit. But the moment somebody else does... It's on. You don't talk shit. I'm the only one that can do that. I'm over here like, that's your brother. Why are you doing something like that? Why are yeah, you talking to Yeah, but if you came for like their brother. That? If I came for, yeah, it wouldn't be on. I, I don't have any siblings, so I don't know how that is, but that's how it is. I don't have any siblings, but if I did, <clears throat> I would have their fucking backs. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, Also, shout yeah. out to my fake sister, whose name is also Lauren, who's listening to this podcast. Hi, Lauren. No, I definitely have a handful of friends by handful i mean all five fingers a handful of friends that i would definitely have their back that is such a scorpio statement to make the the five friends five friends and you would definitely have their back yeah yeah but i bet there's like 50 easily 50 people who say you're their friend yeah maybe but where you at your thoughts on friendship are different i think than other people's thoughts By age 19, Stuart was training at a local boxing gym and eating most dinners at the Hickory Pit to avoid going home. We ate there the other day. The Hickory Pit, yeah. It took about 40 minutes (laughs) to get our food. They're not doing so well with COVID. They've kind of fallen from grace a little bit. And I don't complain on food. Like, I don't. I understand. I've worked it a lot. But, come on. At age 23, Stuart got into an argument on the 4th of July at the beach in Half Moon Bay. People were out partying and setting off fireworks, and there was an altercation. In a rage, Stewart torched the pickup truck of one of the other partygoers. There was a five-year-old child inside until just minutes before he torched it, and the child's mother initially thought her son had burned up inside the truck. His defense lawyers, incidentally, would go on to say that that was a lie in his sentencing hearing, that that never happened. He probably torched the car, but there wasn't a five-year-old in there. It was There, there wasn't a five-year-old in there, but there had been, and the kid's mom said that she thought her kid died before she found out that her kid was somewhere else. Which, nineteen at age 19, would have been the 80s. And it would have been 82, the year I was born. And people were... We're putting that out there. People were a little... I'm old. People were a little bit looser with their kids back in the 80s. I mean, I definitely would have known if my five-year-old was inside or outside of a truck at a 4th of July party on the beach. I would know exactly where my child was the whole time. But that's because I am an exennial, a.k.a. helicopter mom. Despite this, he became a well-known figure in the community in his own right. He owned a trash hauling business as well as several residential properties. David Higgins, 
a tenant of a building owned by Alexander for six years, said he kept a fleet of Volkswagen Beetles scattered in the backyard of the duplex where Higgins lives. Other neighbors said Alexander also kept up to 10 dogs, as well as sheep and pigs, at his West 133rd Avenue home. And that neighborhood is close to the marina. It's a residential neighborhood that's mostly cookie-cutter, manufactured homes, small ones, like little ranch-style homes. And there is absolutely no way that it is zoned for livestock. I would be surprised if people in that area were allowed by the city to have chickens. What a rebel. Ten pigs in his house, though. That's the Ten way dogs. To... Ten dogs, yeah. I don't know how many sheep and pigs. That's a good way to save some money, though, if he Wanted used wool. those pigs <laughs> for his sausages. Oh, yeah. Well, he did, um, when he ran for mayor, which I'll get to later, he did, in the in the local town parades, he did have this big, a pickup with this big trailer, like flatbed trailer full of pigs advertising the factory. So he may have just kept the pigs. That's cute. Yeah, he may have just kept the pigs for things like the small town parades. They may have just been little pets that he used for promotions for the business. That's really cute. Yeah, Santos Linguiso was like the hometown super cute family business that every they were very well loved. Stewart was longtime friends with Reuben Vargas, owner of Chelsea's Guns and Gunsmiths, who described him as a hunter and a fisherman who enjoyed the outdoors. Where would he hunt? People Wonder. people around here leave and go to the mountains. Up they north. go east. They go east, like towards yeah, Yosemite. Yeah. I don't know where you're legally allowed to hunt up there, but I know you are. In 1993, he was arrested for lewd behavior and soliciting a sex worker, but the charges were dropped. In 1993, when Stewart was 32, Tweedy died of cancer, effectively leaving him the Santos Linguisa factory. But Tweedy refused, even on his deathbed, to give Stewart the recipe for the sausages. Jesus, that's harsh. Yeah, his dad, I don't think, liked him a little bit, even a little bit. It's your baby boy. Hey, Dad, how do you make that sausages? I'm not telling you. The factory was closed for four months because Stewart didn't want to take it on after his father's rejection. But according to Stewart, he reopened due to public pressure. He said, People went crazy. They wouldn't stop calling. Some even called the Chamber of Commerce to find out what happened. He ran it successfully without any publicly known problems for several years. In February of 1995, his younger brother Stanley, who had some problems with drug addiction, committed suicide in front of a train which I will say is a classic San Leandro move with all of the trains that run through there. There are a lot of train deaths. So he was standing in front of a train and shot himself right in front of the train. No. When he, he was hit by committed the train. To, he hung himself over a bridge right in front of the train. I can't and believe you're like, making I'm, light of this I, guy's suicide I'm right now. going to kill my committed suicide right in front of a train. And the driver was like, I can't believe what I just... I can't seen, believe what I'm hearing from, you say right now. From this train, some guy just committed suicide right in front of my train. Move out the way, I got some shit to deliver. Stanley Alexander committed suicide by sitting or standing in front of a train and letting it hit him. Oh, my be. In the mid to late 1990s, the factory was beginning to have problems with health inspections. Pardini, the USDA inspector, said that after Stewart took over the factory, conditions were dirtier. An E. coli outbreak at Jack in the Box in at least four states in 1993 killed four children, sickened hundreds, and left 178 people with long-term disability related to kidney and brain damage. The majority of people affected were children. This pushed federal regulators to increase standards for commercially sold meat, requiring all businesses to adhere to those new standards. 
cooking temperature being the most important. Major national chains had the capital to meet those standards quickly, while smaller businesses struggled to replace equipment. Stewart felt this was an example of big business and government bureaucracy teaming up to squash the little guy. He regularly told anyone who would listen that small businesses simply couldn't keep up. Any comments? No, that's like how it goes. 140. You want to cook anything? Cook it to 140 and you're good to serve it to anybody you want and eat it. But uh, sounds like a fucking slacker. (laughs) His girlfriend since 1983, then 33-year-old Eve Elder, said that over the course of their relationship, he became increasingly obsessed with the health inspectors. Together, they made jokes about it, even beginning to write short stories like Sausage Sniffers Found Sauce about drowning the inspectors in secret sauce. But what began as a joke would become more serious over time for Stewart. Eve also said that after a car accident in 1997, in which Stewart suffered a head injury, that his reasoning had begun to deteriorate. That was it. The head injury. She said, I just didn't see real clear thinking choice-wise and she described him as kind of irrational. Stewart was contending with his volatile temper elsewhere as well. In 1996, three years after taking over the factory, he was ordered by city fire officials to clean up junk outside his house after neighbors complained. His 75-year-old neighbor, Clifford Berg, had returned home from a trip to Alaska to find Stewart half-heartedly cleaning up the property. Clifford climbed up onto the roof of his workshop to take pictures to document the progress with the city, and Stewart lost it. About a half hour later, Stewart came over to Clifford's place looking for him. He inexplicably had a young boy with him because he didn't have any children, and the boy was cursing out Clifford. What did he do? Like, pay the kid money or like... Just his little neighborhood hooligan buddy. I'm gonna give you linguista to curse this fool out and... If, does that does that make it more reasonable that there's a kid yelling at a 70-year-old uh, or anything? Or? Maybe the kid was just, he paid the kid a little bit of money to help him clean up the junk and got him on his side. He was actually really good at convincing people that he was the victim in various situations that he got into where he was the aggressor or the person doing something wrong. Was it like a shitty job, too? And the dude was like, I need to take pictures of the shitty job? Like, I don't... Ba- basically, yeah. he was not... He was not cleaning it up in a way that gave this guy the confidence that it was actually going to get done. And I'll say this. San Leandro is a working class town. It's a very blue collar town. The people's yards are very neat in San Leandro. You can almost tell when you're at the border of Oakland and San Leandro by how neatly manicured all of the yards become when you cross the border over. People take it very seriously. Yeah. Oakland's still hella tight, though. Yeah, but our yards are a little bit less... Yeah, we don't give a fuck. (laughs) Sure. Stuart pushed his way into Clifford's house. The old man said he tried pushing him back out, but to no avail. He started up a tape recorder to deter Stuart from coming inside or becoming violent. Spoiler, that did not work. Stuart, who had been training at the boxing gym for many years, hit him in the mouth, followed with two haymaker punches, and once Clifford fell down, kicked him repeatedly, cracking his ribs. Stewart took clip. Well, I'll also say this. I had to look up what a haymaker punch was. And so for anybody who doesn't know what a haymaker punch is, it's an arcing punch that goes up and upward and down. So like up over a person's head and then back down onto their head. And it's considered one of the most violent punches in boxing. A Superman punch, I think is what they call it in UFC. A Superman punch? Yeah. Oof. Coming down. 
Stewart took Clifford's camera, which police later found he had smashed, destroying the two pictures of Stewart's property and all Clifford's Alaska trip photos, which I felt really sad for him. I knew that that, was a, that that hurt him, that he brought that up when he was testifying about it, that he talked about losing his Alaska pictures. Stewart also took the tape recorder. While Clifford called 911 to get medical attention, Stewart was calling the police to report Clifford for attacking him. Stewart didn't have a scratch on him. Oh, what a on Yeah, 70-year-old. He didn't leave 75. Any, any marks on him. Yeah. Police filed charges for the assault, but dropped them when Stewart agreed to pay Clifford $10,000 in a civil suit. Eve Elder left Alexander in 1997. Took her long enough. He responded by locking her out of their shared house he still owed her $40,000 for so that she couldn't get her possessions. Wow. Nice guy. I, I think... When you see an action like that from a guy, you know that he's been at, at a minimum emotionally and psychologically abusive, like, the whole time. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't just come out of nowhere. People that just turn into assholes out of nowhere. He was probably a real asshole through their whole relationship. Well, his dad kind of seen an asshole incognito. Well, yeah, his dad had a yeah, public... He yeah. was, like, a covert narcissist in that way that he had this cultivated persona of being really charismatic everyone that knew him from the business thought he was the greatest guy but then his ex-wife and his own kids just knew him as this absolute monster mm -hmm. and i'm glad they spoke out too and let they, people know they mostly didn't they're even the when they're talking about well him, after he was dead and he couldn't whoop their ass anymore yeah i mean even when they talk about it they don't they're pretty vague about it like he didn't show a lot of love he was a little verbally abusive. He was hard on Stewart. He said, but then when they say what he said to Stewart, you know, telling him he'd never amount to anything and things like that, it's like you've got to fill in some blanks there that he was probably pretty nasty. In 1998, Stewart ran for mayor of San Leandro on an anti establishment platform, at least in part because he felt it would give him the power to stop what he felt were attacks from government bureaucracy against small businesses. He hadn't just been coming up against food regulations he didn't like. He had been making building renovations without permits, parking his cars illegally, and leaving junk around his yard, attracting the notice of the building department, police department, and fire department, respectively. Once townsfolk found out about him beating his neighbor, he couldn't garner enough support. He finished third of four candidates. His loss may also have something to do with the fact that he tried to emulate his father's business style, taking loans from local people and businesses, but he struggled to pay them back in damaged relationships. I'm being generous when I say he struggled to pay them back. What people actually said was he took out loans and then didn't pay them back. Yeah, yeah. Emulating his father uh, with the technique. Is that a thing? You can ask like a local business? Yeah. They're, hey, can you lend me some money and when my company makes it back, I'll... Yeah, in a small town where you know everybody and you have to get some new equipment or you know, so, something, a contract falls through with the grocery store or whatever, you ask for a loan so you can pay, pay your employees. And then if you're paying your loans back, people don't mind loaning you money. And apparently, from what I heard, Tweedy didn't just pay the loans back. He, you know, he paid them back with interest or like kicked down a little bit more to say thank you. So he was always maintaining those relationships. So then Stuart came in riding on the coattails of those created yeah, relationships yeah, yeah. and then just blew them up. Like, hey, remember my dad? He did this. Can I do the same thing? Sure, your dad was a good guy. Yeah, yeah, you might be too. Yeah, no. 
I mean, you have another, you have a company yourself. Is it not making enough money? Many of his creditors sued him during this time, and he filed for bankruptcy the same year. He filed for bankruptcy the same year as his mayoral bid, and again in 1999. Sometime in the late 90s, Stewart started up an on-again, off-again relationship with Charlotte Knapp, who he met one day picking up junk for his trash hauling business. She said that early on, he was a lot of fun and could be friendly, caring, and generous, but he kept his emotions to himself and didn't display any tenderness. When she asked him why, she says he told her, my parents never showed me any love. Oh, oh. look at that. that. That's how you get them. Sad baby. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. So I had a hard life, so you should love me a bunch. I think, I mean, it, it may be that he was doing that, and it may be that he was just explaining why he was so closed off. I mean, he's clearly a dick, but in this instance, I don't know if it's like an example. This may, this may be the most emotionally vulnerable he ever got. This may be his moment of just realness. That's his, that's his chance. Hey, I'm dumping your junk. Uh, can I get your digits? <laughs> I This was into the relationship that he said that, though, not when he was trying to get her digits. Well, that, it, it said that he, was, he met her working for his business. Well, I said it because I wrote it. Yeah. The, into the relationship. She said that he was fun, but he kept his emotions to himself, and she asked him why. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it does sound familiar. Yeah. Okay, keep going. <laughs> Despite being charged for beating Clifford Berg and outed for it publicly in 1998 during his mayoral campaign, and despite mounting pressure from health inspectors to upgrade the facility, the factory still had a great reputation and orders kept coming in, from local businesses to grocery store chains and even Domino's Pizza. The factory had never even advertised. This was all based on word of mouth and the delicious recipe Pia Santos brought with her from Portugal. Stewart once said in a 1999 interview about the factory that their linguisa was the food you make friends with. You give someone our linguisa and you have a friend for life. Wow. Outside the public eye, however, Stewart became increasingly hostile and agitated. He told ex-girlfriend Charlotte Knapp, I'd like to kill them. If I did away with them, I would put them in the meat grinder and no one would know. That's fucking crazy. I've never been... I've never thought, okay, food inspectors, they come in, they check your walk-in, they check your cupboards, they check the pipes. Okay, but if I you wanna... had a giant meat grinder, I'm just saying, if you had a giant, and I'm not I'm not playing devil's advocate for Stuart Alexander, I'm more playing devil's advocate for myself, because in private, I say lots of things that I don't really want to happen. If I had a giant meat grinder, or if you had a giant meat grinder, and there was someone that you didn't like, would you not joke about putting them in the meat grinder? Because I would. Yeah. But I would never yeah, put totally. someone in a meat grinder. That's horrible. That's Also, that's human funny. meat is probably delicious, and I think it would be a waste to put it in a meat grinder and make it into a sausage when you could have a nice roast, a rump roast. Yeah, yeah. No, I've totally... And I've worked in a place with meat grinders. I've worked in a place where we've gotten half cows set in and everything, and we have food inspectors... Everybody is on their toes when food inspectors come in. You're getting ready. You get everything up to code. They let you know when they're coming in, too. That's the thing. It's just like school. you got to follow a couple of rules to get through it. you got, you know, like, life is full of these little hoops that we have to jump through, and health inspections aren't actually a big one. And that's because you don't want to have a business where you're giving people E. coli. You want to be clean enough to meet those standards anyway. Yeah. So 
it really isn't actually such, you know, it sucks to have somebody scrutinizing you for a day, or in this case, you know, USDA inspectors come every day to inspect. But you, you just kind of do it because you actually do want to meet the standards because you care about your product and you care about the people consuming it. That's the thing. You think school stops at 12 years. People boss you the rest of your life. The rest of your life, there's always somebody above you checking your shit, your grades. It's me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Walking on eggshells over here. Oof. <laughs> at this point... Health inspectors were coming into the factory regularly to oversee conditions, cleanliness, and cooking temperatures. And Stewart felt this was harassment, even though this is a normal part of running a meat business. <laughs> yeah, it's inspectors. They come in once a year. No, they come in almost every day they when come they, in with the USDA. Every, every day. No, they don't check your shop every day. The USDA checks meat processing plants really frequently and because he was always on uh always on I guess always on the ropes with them mm -hmm. they there were long period long stretches of time where he had daily inspections. I I worked shout out to Hottinger's Meat Company in Chino, California. Shout out, I'm dropping this. If you want some meat, hit them up, but I worked there and we didn't get hit up as much as this case. Well, that's I don't, because this guy was gross. That That's why, yeah. We met standards and we cleaned the shop tits. Yeah, it's interesting. One point of contention was cooking temperature. Stuart wanted to cook the sausage as the family always had, but health regulations stated that they needed to be cooked at at least 140 degrees to prevent foodborne illness. Not only did Stuart not like being told what to do, he was concerned this would cause more shrinkage in a product sold by weight and lessen his profit margin. The new regulations required him to use new smokers that met modern health regulations, but he wanted to use the existing antiquated equipment. No one had ever been sick from a Santos Linguisa in almost 80 years, so why should he change the way things were done? Shout out to Santos Linguisa for never poisoning anybody with their delicious, delicious sausage. Yeah, if I had a time machine... This this whole podcast is just making my mouth water. That's me. Yeah, and Lauren. Twice, the factory was shut down and Stuart reopened it illegally, taking out <laughs> loans to do so. And this is like actually at least twice. This mm -hmm. is twice that I was sure I could document in the research that I was doing. But I think it was actually more times he reopened illegally. And he did, he was taking out loans. So this, the business is hemorrhaging money. And Stuart Alexander's stress is just escalating. Charlotte said, on many occasions he would go, bang, 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 and say the last bullet would be for himself. Two That's smart. To say he's going to kill people? No, that he's going to end himself after oh. he kills people. Reverse the order. I'm going to pull a Ben Kissel. I'm going to say, <laughs> flip it and reverse it. <laughs> We're going to send yet. Two weeks before the murders, he told Charlotte he could get away with killing somebody because all he would have to do is call famous defense attorney Johnny Cochran, who represented O.J. Simpson and plead insanity. I'm going to say he could have hired Milton Grimes. That was his specialty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Knapp also said that once when they were alone at the sausage factory, Alexander told her, I could do away with you and nobody would know. This is another example. I'm out. I'm out. Him sounding like a shitty, abusive boyfriend, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he had an apartment complex. He had a moving company. 
he would have been balling, but he would have lived decently. Just drop the sausage company if you can do it. Don't produce. He thought grimy, he had to live up to his father's image. Grimy ass fucking pork. I'll, I'll say this: at this time, no one was dissatisfied. No one that was eating the sausage was dissatisfied with it. In fact, in 1999, that was the interview. There was a food piece for the San Francisco Chronicle. That was when he was telling the story of how he had to reopen because the public was just clamoring for Linguisa. Yeah, no, I bet it was bomb as fuck. So in 1999, which was only a year before the murders and while he was being inspected all the time, there were still newspapers that wanted to interview him about how great the sausage was, and they were still regularly shipping to grocery stores across the country. Yeah, oh, okay, he shot three people, but people were like, can we still get his sausage? Oh, actually, so this is, that was before the murders. But actually, yes, after the murders, he was portrayed in the public as a small businessman pushed over the edge. And there were there were people... So Jean Hillary, the woman who was one of the murder victims, there were people that her daughter grew up with because she lived in Alameda, which is, for people who don't live in the Bay Area, it's like 10 minutes from San Leandro. And there were people that her daughter grew up with that were defending him to her. Her mom, he killed her mom, and people were defending him. And one of the premises, or premises, of their defense of him was how good the sausage was. And that yeah. is really fucked up. That is really fucked up. There I mean, is no sausage good enough to kill somebody's grandma for. She wasn't somebody's grandma. She was a person, or any person. Bomb food is bomb food. I mean... But you know what? Bomb food is a dime a dozen in the Bay Area. There are lots of places to get bomb food. Yep, and after quarantine, we're not going to have half of those places. That's true, that's sad. R.A.P. all those places. Yep, you should have saved some money and not been shitty with your money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, then you could have stayed open, you could have paid your Latino cooks and everything, and they could have been happy, but if you're closing, that says something about your business. sounds personal. I know a few people that are pissed off, but (laughs) anyways... (laughs) Stewart was given a January 2000 deadline to get up to code, and he shut his own plant down in defiance and posted a sign at the front of the factory. And I'm just going to say, this was not something he printed out on his computer. He went to a sign-making company and got a big, like, five-foot sign printed and, and installed it in front. And it said, To all of our great customers, the USDA is coming into our plant harassing my employees and me and making it impossible to make our great product. Gee, if all meat plants could be in business for 79 years without one complaint, the meat inspectors would not have jobs. Therefore, we are taking legal action against them. And I am just going to say, they didn't have any complaints until Stewart took it over. And I, it just reminds me of Dr. Phil. I don't know if you remember this about Dr. Phil, but when somebody was having problems with everyone in their life, he'd go, you are the common denominator. <laughs> and that's what I hear in my head when I think of Stuart being like, well, we never got a complaint in almost 80 years, and now we're getting all these complaints. And it's like, well, who's getting the complaints, though, Stuart? I mean, this is, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is straight not giving a fuck. It's not me. It's y'all. This is that, like, white entitlement, like, white man entitlement of, like, I can do no wrong. No one can tell me what to do. I'm a victim of everything that ever happens, including the consequences of my own terrible actions. I wonder how the people at fucking Kinko's were like when he came with them. I want you to write this <laughs> on a sign. 
<laughs> this big and put it out in front of my company, all right, well, there's going to be an extra fee because it's crazy. Crazy. <laughs> Uh, but we'll do it. I would have been like, fuck yeah, I'm writing this shit. Alexander started writing emails to friends saying things like, I'm going to smoke them. I'm going to shoot them execution style. Boom, boom. He started keeping guns in his desk at work, and he reopened the factory. Health inspector Donald Pardini had been called in for daily inspections because younger inspectors were intimidated by Stewart. He came to the factory for inspections in April, two months prior to the murders. He saw 500 pounds of meat in bins that were slimy and smelled rancid. If I was a meat inspector back then, the young ones that were intimidated, I would have gotten shot a lot sooner <laughs> than those three meat inspectors inside of there. I just think like if I were a meat inspector at the Santos Linguisa factory, I would be like, I'm going to have to seize these sausages. These are... Uh, unfit for public sale, and I'm definitely not taking them home to eat them. That's not happening. <laughs> no, that'd be like a snarky little motherfucker. That guy didn't wash his hands, <laughs> and he's grabbing those. They just pulled that off of the counter, and you just had chicken on there right before that. I'm going to have to take this yeah, sausage. I'm going to have to take this sausage. <laughs> oh, man, he would have been pissed. Yeah, he definitely would have shot me for stealing sausage. <laughs> so Donald tagged the bins and ordered that they not be sold. And then he found a falsified sanitation report. So he shut the factory down. Yeah, that's a fuck up. That and the, ra the rotten meat. Yeah, yeah. He told Stewart it wasn't a big deal, that all he had to do was fix the issues and everything would be good. But Stewart lost it and cussed him out. Later in May, Stewart called the USDA to schedule an inspection so he could reopen. The facility was not even close to up to code. Pardini said there was mold on the ceiling and walls, rust on a cutting board used to debone pork butts, meat residue in the equipment, and aprons splattered with meat products hanging in a bathroom. And I'll also say this, I would, have still, I would still eat the sausage. I understand why it shouldn't be sold to the public, but it was really good, and I would still eat it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, there's a... I've eaten in some pretty, <laughs> I've eaten some pretty dirty restaurants before. And it's bomb and I'm AF. Biased. But Pardini said he was happily surprised when he returned to Santos Liguisa the next day and found it was amazingly clean. He said, the plant looked great and ready to go. I felt we had turned a corner and Mr. Alexander was complying with our requirements. He described Alexander as being in a good mood. Stewart's mood shifted dramatically that day after Pardini tried to get him to commit to a time inspectors could return to check temperatures of sausage being smoked. Stewart silently walked into his office and brought back a camera, taking a picture of Pardini's face. Stewart said, this is bullshit, and kicked Pardini out, calling him a trespasser. He accused Pardini of harassing him and ordered all of the inspectors on site to leave, saying they were trespassing. Pardini warned him as he left that kicking them out would nullify the entire inspection and that would mean they couldn't reopen. Alexander then wrote him a letter accusing him of being unfair and demanding a new inspector for Santos Liguisa. Pardini refused to return to the plant until Alexander retracted the remarks and apologized, which of course never happened and probably saved his life. Yeah, yeah, I'm not coming back to this fucking place. Pulling out cameras and shit. Yeah, that was his thing. He liked to put a camera in people's face and take a picture, which reminds me of people with their cell phones now. This one, you have a whole fucking factory. You have people packing sausages. You have people 
putting them in the tubes. We have to come back for one more thing, and he flips out. He didn't like being told what to do. People, you, you so, always have somebody coming in there. Stru there are so many things that we endure under the system that are like truly, truly unfair. There's so many things, yes. that, including, including, oh, I hate saying it, including white men. There are so many things yeah. that we endure that are actually unfair. But being held to a standard of cleanliness when you're serving food to people is like one of the least unfair things that we endure. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of embarrassing. I have this like, I want to say sympathy mortification because that's the phrase that I use, but it sounds like I'm sympathetic to it. What I really mean is that when someone does something that embarrassing, it gives me kind of a stomach ache for like how awful it makes me feel to just watch them be such a embarrassing turd and he's such a turd yeah is there yeah. like another word for he's a turd no he's he's a turd motherfucker but it's like Stuart had a timer okay we're gonna clean the place it's gonna be acceptable for food inspectors to come in we're gonna treat him nice and then his timer stopped once they said that they were gonna come back and it was like what like, your place is still going to be clean. You're probably still going to do the same type of maintenance this that you've been doing thing. for that. This is the thing, though. This is the thing that happens with men where they, they, they feel already put out by having to be held to anyone else's standard at all. Yeah. And so they, they do this sort of bare minimum amount of work to catch up to the standard, but they, they still don't meet it. But they did this work, and they already resented having to do that work. And they felt like, well, it's good enough. And then as soon as somebody, like their girlfriend or their wife or some other woman or some authority figure, I may be personalizing this slightly, as soon as some other figure points out that they have not met the standard, they, they're able to, all of a sudden they go from zero to 60 on their range because they already felt like having to try at all was unfair. But this is the food police. <laughs> they can fuck your shit up. You should know that, so why not just... And these are just such small hoops to go through. If you just comply, and I'm not saying you need to comply with actual police, but... Yeah, it's sort of like when you get a traffic ticket from a cop, and you know that it's unfair, or you just really, like, you can't pay it, or whatever. It's this fucked up situation, but you just pull over, and you just stay really, really calm, and you just handle the situation because it's the easiest way out of it. This is like the same thing. The easiest way for him out of the situation is to just kind of suck it up, get his ducks in a row, do the thing, and then he can go on to doing his you know regular day-to-day -day thing. Nope. He stepped on the gas and started a police chase. Yeah. And it went on down the 405 and the white <laughs> Bronco and fucking ended up it's, shooting people. It's more like... It's more like he... He was like, no, I won't show you my license. No, I, you tell me why you're pulling me over and did that thing. I know my rights. I know my rights, but didn't actually know his yes, rights. Yes. I'm such a victim in this situation. Yes. And then refused to, you know, refused to show his wallet, refused. And then the cop says, we'll step out of the car. And he's like, no, you can't make me step out of the car. You can't make me step out of the car. And like, it doesn't, was, a cop has a gun. So you do technically have to step out of the car, even if it's not right. Even if it violates your rights. Like if you enjoy your bodily like function you you're gonna have to let go of your autonomy of it for a minute when you're around the cops sometimes 
So it's like that. He's like the he's like that Karen that like won't get out of the car. A, That's such a what I was of just... traffic stop. Or like there was that one video of that Karen who like she sideswiped somebody and then tried to run and then the cop pulled her over and she threw a fit and was like, I'm not getting out of the car. I have my rights. I have my rights. And then in that situation, fuck the police. In that situation, the cop like tases her and. It's hard to feel sorry for her because of how entitled she is, but it's still, we don't, I don't believe that cops should be able to taste anybody. But oh. in this case, dude, you gotta hold it and then give me a warning and wait for a pause. My bad, I just burped. But in, but in this case, it's more like he was like, I know my rights, I know my rights, I know my rights, and then was like, fine, I'll get my wallet, and then pulled out a gun and then shot the cop. That's what I was just gonna say. Was he's the OG Karen. He's carrying all of this shit. He's, I mean, men are men are just like a more aggressive Karen. Karen's like men do like a more of a like a aggressive victim thing, and Karens do more of a like, ouch, that hurt. Karens, <laughs> you're they hurting can get me. away with it because they fucking dudes. So at this point, Pardini needed to escalate the issue with the USDA by moving the inspection duties to the compliance department of the USDA. He brought it to Gene Hillary. Jean had been a compliance officer just over a year and was still considered a trainee, which is a long training period. Oh, Jean. I don't have the patience for that. I could never do a job where I did it for a year and they considered me a trainee still. Yeah. Unless it was an apprenticeship. That's different. I, I that's guess kind that's of, kind that's of like kind what of, it is. kind of what it is, yeah. After holding off on a career until her three children had grown up and left home, she got a job at the USDA as a supply clerk, joined an internal upward mobility program, and went back to college. She had recently been promoted to compliance officer. She was the only female compliance officer in the state and took her job very seriously, most likely because she felt like she had to prove herself. You know, maybe she was a really meticulous, serious person yeah. in general, but I bet she really felt like she had to prove herself, yeah. and I think that plays into how things went down. Jean began investigating the Santos Seguisa factory. The first time she went to the factory to inspect, she brought California State Meat Safety Officer Earl Willis. Stewart went off on Jean, cussing her out, complaining about requirements, and so on. But when Earl broke in, Stewart calmed down. He even shook Earl's hand at the end of the conversation. As Jean and Earl toured the factory, they ended up finding new sausage that had been made despite the fact that Stewart was shut down by the USDA and Health Department. So do you know you know why he calmed down when Earl popped in? I do know why. Why? You tell me. Because he was a fucking guy. Yeah. That's why. That's why. So, Stuart was not allowed to reopen at that time. June 19th, 2000. It was three days before her death, though she didn't know it. Jean drove by the factory as a part of her investigation. She saw that Stuart was accepting a shipment of meat and that operations had resumed, so she went inside and asked Secretary Brooke Silverglide to speak with him. Brooke, who was then 20 years old and also a part-time model, told her he wasn't there and couldn't speak to her. And I'm going to just interrupt myself here to say Brooke Silverglide is a total babe. She's still a babe. I looked her up on the internet and I found her. She's super hot. And she was a model. And... In the year 2000, this guy with this failing business is paying her $20 an hour to be his secretary. I also looked that up. He was paying her $20 an hour to be his secretary, and he was buying her clothes, 
and buying her lunches and taking her mm. out all the time. And I'm not saying she was sleeping with him. I'm just saying he was a creepy dude. But I'll, We're not saying it, but we still don't know. I don't, I don't think she was sleeping with him. I think he maybe was grooming her in the hopes of that or really enjoyed her attention. Because as it turns out, Stuart was able to really wrap, him, wrap Brooke into his fantasy about how he was the victim of all of the government bureaucracies and of these health inspectors and that they were harassing him. She was really on board with that delusion of his. She really believed it. And that plays into the murders. But also I want to say that in the year 2000, I was also a secretary and I only made $12 an hour. And I was 19, or in 2001, I was 19. In 2000, when I got the job, I was still 18. And I was so cute. And how come I didn't know that I could go make $20 an hour? Yeah, I wouldn't have minded working for some slimy, greasy sausage guy or whatever, making $20 an hour, buying me lunch, buying me clothes. I probably would have told him that I fed into his delusions also, although yeah, I she, hope I wouldn't have. She was booed up too, right? She was. She ended up marrying the guy she was um, dating at the time. Maybe so, we can get like a special podcast interview. With Brooke Silverglide? With Brooke Silverglide. I don't think we'd get much out of it looking at her testimony. This wasn't Jean's first time dealing with a hostile and evasive Stuart, so Jean persisted and Brooke finally went to retrieve him. When he came out, he barely took a breath before screaming and cursing at Jean, so she left. The next day, Jean dug deep into the operations of the factory and found recent UPS receipts that showed Stuart had been shipping meat across state lines while he was ordered to cease operations. This was proof that he was shipping undercooked meat around the U.S. That day, Secretary Brooke Silverglide found the guns in Stewart's desk and took mental note. Meanwhile, Stewart, on the same day, Stewart installed security cameras inside the factory. He believed they would document what he felt was mounting harassment from health inspectors. He stayed at the factory until about 2 a.m. obsessing over the upcoming inspection, and I can totally just imagine him like pacing around, checking his cameras, being like, I'm going to prove it that they're harassing me and like this is going to show everybody like I'm the victim here. That that's what you think you're putting in cameras. It's going to capture your part, but guess what the camera showed? They capture everything. Yeah, guess what the camera showed? The day of the murders, Jean arrived at the factory with three inspectors who were familiar with Stuart and the problems at the factory. Did they say familiar instead of familiar? I think I did. The inspectors were Tom Quadros, who worked with the USDA, and California Meat Safety Inspectors William Shaleen and Earl Willis, who was able to calm Stuart down before. It was supposed to be Earl Willis's day off, but he agreed to go in to deal with Stuart, because he'd done a good job before. They were going to show him the evidence that he was further out of compliance, issue violations, and shut the operation down. This was possibly his last chance to agree to comply or be shut down completely. He was... He was in big T, as my mom would say. My mom used yeah. to say that. Instead of saying you're in big trouble, my mom used to say, you're in big T. And that's how I knew it was really serious. I was really in trouble. Yeah, she'd, my, also, she'd also say, you're skating on thin ice. <laughs> my mom used to say, wait till we get home. Ooh, scary. <laughs> I don't want to go home. But Stuart wasn't there, and neither was Secretary Brooke Silverglide. I think they were, I like to say her name, that's why I say the whole thing, Secretary Brooke Silverglide. She yeah, sounds like no, a, it sounds like a really cool name. It's like a superhero or like some fancy lawyer or something like that. I think that. of like a film noir, like she's the secretary. There we go. Secretary yeah. Brooke Silverglide, she's the secretary to the detective. I think they were on a like little lunch date. 
I don't think they knew the inspectors were coming at that time, and yeah, they, were, yeah. they were out to lunch. And they were waiting, and inspectors were like, no, I'm going to wait for this motherfucker to get here. We have all day. I know he's trying to dodge us. It was something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The inspectors got a tour through We got the, nothing but time. The inspectors got a tour through the factory by an elderly Portuguese butcher named Joe. Hi, Joe. And found out that Stewart had products ready to ship out with USDA inspected labels on them, though they had not been inspected or approved for sale. The inspectors waited over an hour and a half for Stewart to return and almost left at one point, but Earl said they'd already waited so long they might as well wait just a bit longer. Oof. It's your first bad call, and, and really your last one, Earl. Yeah, yeah, down. His first bad call and his last bad call. It's not a... It wouldn't normally be a bad record, except for what happened shortly after this. Shortly after, Stuart came in and immediately started screaming at Gene, ordered them all to leave, and then stormed off to his office. It's funny how he always just tries to yell at Gene. Yeah, he always targets her. Yeah, no. Gene, I would have slapped him. I'd like to see that. No, I'm maybe, not saying that in maybe, a, I'd like to see that, like you wouldn't do it just like... Me I, being Gene. I would enjoy seeing you or Gene slap him. Like, that would be enjoyable. Gene and the other inspectors talked amongst themselves about what to do. The more experienced inspectors were very concerned about the volatility of the situation. No shade to Gene. I think she really was trying hard to prove herself here. I think that she felt like if she let this tough case fail or or ended up handing it over to somebody more senior to her that it was going to be considered a sign that she couldn't do her job and she really needed to stay stay strong and stay assertive and do her job and show them what she was capable of. Quadros called a supervisor and the supervisor recommended he call Stanley at her police to request an officer to be present. So he stepped outside to do that and wait for the officer to arrive. Crazy. Stewart came back in with his camera and took pictures of the three remaining inspectors. Earl and William were taken off guard and just looked sort of awkward in the pictures, but Jean, never wavering, just smiled at the camera, refusing to be intimidated. So this was just a normal inspection, and Homeboy rolls up with a camera, yelling at the female inspector, trying to take pictures, getting in their face. He's got to make it wild. He's got to take it up. Too many notches. This happens to every restaurant, every people that are dealing with food. God damn. Jean wanted to see this through. She didn't want to back down from this irate man who would scream at her and refuse to work with her. Word. Earl Willis was especially concerned. He said that Stewart's eyes looked squirrely. He was concerned Stewart may pull a gun. This is like a, I feel like this is an interesting thing because Earl is black and Jean is a white woman from Alameda. Jean, not believing Stewart would actually shoot the gun, told Earl that would be good because as federal officers, he'd be committing a crime by pulling a gun on them and be arrested. And I feel like this is the place where a lot, I think a lot of times people of color have a, a better read on what white people's shady level is. Yeah. And it's also a very white woman thing to be like, well, I'm a federal inspector, and if he pulls a gun on me, that he's going to be on the wrong side of the law. Yeah. And it's like, he's already on the wrong side of the law, and he clearly doesn't yeah. give a shit. Yeah. So that's not necessarily any protection for you, Gene. Yeah, well, well, me being me, I've had a gun pulled on me a few times in my life, and you would think, yeah, no, he's not crazy enough to do shit like that, but he... 
he was and he went there it'd be like no we're safe because we're food inspectors and this is what normally happens but dealing with the psychopath like Stuart yeah it's just scary as fuck yeah well Earl clearly had a good read on Stuart he had the best read on the situation yeah and he didn't want to be there anymore he didn't want to be in the situation at all he wanted to leave he wanted them all to leave and he argued voraciously for them to leave and Gene wouldn't budge. And so they agreed, the three inspectors inside, William, Gene, and, and Earl, agreed that Earl should go outside and relieve Tom, who was waiting for the police, so that he could feel more comfortable to wait outside to be out of this really hostile situation. None of the inspectors knew that that call to police was treated as low priority and was not going to be answered. Fuck. Yeah. The cops were not coming. Well, that's the cops. And that will probably still happen today. Well, the cops are not really here to protect you, sorry, to burst your bubble. Stuart walked back to his office and called police himself. And he said that inspectors were trespassing and he wanted police to remove them. That call was also treated as low priority and no officer was immediately dispatched. And I also Ah. find this interesting that dispatch, it's a small town, dispatch receives two calls about one situation where people are saying this is getting heated and dangerous. And it's still listed as a low priority. What are the priorities? What And what else is going on in San Leandro that's more important than that? San Leandro really is not. There's not a lot of action. When Stewart was back by his office, the inspectors could overhear Brooke yelling. I mean, this is to the point that Earl could hear Brooke yelling because that's the only reason we have the story. Brooke Silverstein? Brooke Silverglide. Silverglide. She's yelling... How come they're here again? They're trespassing and things like that. And she also had testified that she really didn't like the inspectors coming in because it would irritate Stuart and then he would be really upset and she just really didn't like to see him upset and she felt like if they just didn't come in and hassle him that he wouldn't get upset. That's something that a little sugar baby secretary would say for... To be fair to Brooke, let's like not come down on her so hard. She was 20 years old and this is probably like her first serious job. She's making good money. This guy's taking good care of her. I don't think that we should imply that she's a sugar baby even though maybe he was grooming her to be that way. I don't think that we should... I think that wouldn't... I don't think that's fair without evidence. Okay. Brooke is back there talking to Stuart and she's egging him on. When when you're upset about something being unfair and someone else comes in and tells you, oh, this is so unfair, I can't believe this is happening, it makes things worse. Whereas if someone comes and goes, man, this sucks and it is unfair, but we got to just deal with the situation, that's the kind of thing that calms a person down. Brooke did not have the foresight or emotional maturity to do that in the situation. And that sucks because three people are about to die. Yeah, you're holding it down for your business, your owner and everything. It feels like you're in the right. She then suggests to Stuart that in cases of trespassing, a person can fire a warning shot. And she suggested that maybe he'd do that. (laughs) So Brooke is thinking, like, trespassing, that's a thing that happens on ranches. And cowboys go out and fire a warning shot. Why don't you go fire a warning shot? That is a... Just a wild escalation. You know, in a, imagine someone comes into the restaurant that you work in to inspect it, and your boss comes out and is like, you got to get out of here. Bang, bang. <laughs> Yo, you would Sam, be like, what? I am also out of here. I do not want to be here. She was, 
watching some Looney Tunes with Yosemite Sam yes. or something. Yes. <laughs> Where did she get that from? She must have been doing some sort of research. I on, don't think on so. Because she stumbled across the guns in the office before. I, no, and she, so she... It was only the day before she pulled open the drawer to his desk and saw guns in there. I think she just had it in her very young... I mean, that's kind of a kid thing to think, right? She is a kid. She is a kid. Her brain's, her frontal lobe isn't fully developed yet. Stewart's like, yeah, that's a great idea, I guess. He's like, yeah, maybe I will go fire a warning shot. Everything's I, going off when you got all these people on you and inspectors and your secretary. There's three people waiting in his shit. lobby to like serve him with paperwork. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah, not no. yelling at him. No, I'm, I'm not saying that the crazy dude was in the right. He goes to his desk and then he calmly retrieves his guns. And he walks out to where they are, and he shoots them. He fired on them several times, and each one of them crumpled to the floor. Then he walked outside to shoot Earl Willis, who saw him and started booking it down Fuck the street. Fuck yeah. I'm <laughs> out of here. Yeah. Earl Willis is running up. This was on Washington Street in San Leandro. And so he starts running up, up the street. Stewart starts chasing him with the gun, and he's firing on him, saying, Stop! Thief! Thief! Which, again, I want to go back to this race issue of this white guy chasing a black man down the street, falsely accusing him of theft and firing on him because he is thinking that this is going to let him get, no one's going to intervene on him if he's firing on a black man who's perceived as a thief, which is wrong on how many levels. Like, it's not cool to shoot people for stealing stuff because people's lives are more valuable than stuff. We could start there. Yeah. Um, also, like, this is peak white privilege, right? I can chase this person down the street for my own benefit. Like, I can attack this person, and all I have to do, because they're black, is give people the idea that they may be a criminal. Even though I'm the criminal. This guy. And people what? will def- protect me and allow me to murder him. Stewart's running down the street, chasing Earl, shouting, stop, thief, and just shooting indiscriminately. But either his gun jammed or it ran out of bullets, and Earl was able to duck into a nearby bank. It probably did, because there was 20 shots fired. Well, he's, he's not done shooting. Stewart calmly walked back to the Linguisa factory and shot each of the remaining inspectors in the head. Surveillance video showed Jean was still moving up until he shot her in the head. God damn. After the murder, Stewart walked outside, closed the roll-down security gate to the factory, and sat down. When a police officer walked up, incidentally an old high school classmate of his, he said, I'm the guy you want, and put his hands behind his back. The officer was confused at first, but did handcuff him. Meanwhile, when Secretary Brooke Silverglide heard shots fired, she was in the office, in, in the back office at the factory. What she, was she doing in the back she, office during this whole time, just sitting there watching these shots pop up? She didn't and, watch them. Hearing these shots pop off. I'm, just, I'm about to tell you. She kicked out a window screen, climbed out the back window, got in her car, called her boyfriend, and drove home. She later testified that she was afraid he would shoot her as the only witness. Okay. She didn't go out to check and see if someone needed an ambulance. I'm not going to say she instigated it, but she participated in escalating the situation. And then she fucking cut. Again, what we were talking about earlier. If you're saying she, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. She's a baby, but she's 20, and 
I think, I'm not saying she's responsible for it. She's a little, a little oh. shady. This is some shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I actually, I'm going to get into the consequences that she faced for this. I don't really think that this, these consequences were especially fair. And I don't think that I would push for a lot of, I wouldn't put, well, I wouldn't push for any legal consequences for her. But I do think that on some level, she acted, this is the thing, she acted wrongly. I see you like chewing on your thumb trying to wait for me to finish talking. She acted wrongly. And I think that there is some level of accountability for how she acted that she should deal with so that as she goes into other situations in her life, she doesn't act that way again. That doesn't mean that I think that she should be sued or criminally responsible or anyone should say that she started this or that it's her fault. Obviously, it's not her fault. Again, 20 years old, scared. They can wipe themselves clean. Good-looking people can get away with a lot. She didn't get away. She didn't get away. In fact... She Is she was, doing jail time? Did she do any jail time after this? No, but I said I'd tell you the consequences that she faced. But not only did she face the, con- the the legal consequences that she did, she was portrayed in the media as being this slutty sugar baby. Hmm. She was portrayed as being this like slutty sugar baby who was like, Daddy, you should go shoot those inspectors. Shoot them. Like, that's not what happened. And that's pretty fucked up. Yeah, yeah. And you were talking about her bouncing. Yeah, she just cut. Through the window. Yeah, yeah. And on some level, I do understand that. You hear guns. There's there's a primal urge 20 for years survival. old is... You've got to hit the deck. Yeah, get I, out of Dodge. I right think there. on some level, she was like, maybe you should fire a warning shot. And she probably had never even heard a gun fired before. Yeah. And didn't even really understand what she was saying. Stewart was in Santa Rita Jail in Pleasanton for over four years prior to and during his trial. Deputies said that he was a character in jail. He'd come out of his cell and gesture to one deputy kissing his biceps. He'd, he'd like do like finger guns with the deputy and then like kiss his biceps one at a time when he came out of his cell. Another deputy said that he always got to head the line for food and remarked that he must have the other inmates' respect to do that. Which is hard to imagine. He's not a very respectable character. Being locked up, man, if you kill a fool, that gets you a lot of respect. In 2002, while Stewart was awaiting trial, William Shaleen's daughter filed a wrongful death suit, winning a $3 million verdict from Stewart and settling a month later with Secretary Brooke Silverglide for $245,000. Brooke said she'd use her mother's homeowner insurance to pay the settlement. <laughs> and that'll teach ya... To raise your kids to make good choices. (laughs) Stewart's trial didn't start until May 2004. As he had foreshadowed to Charlotte, his defense argued that he had snapped and that the inspectors had known that he was teetering on the brink of madness. They even argued that since inspectors knew this, they had taken the action that sent him over the edge. They argued that because he put up cameras and called police for assistance, that this could not possibly be premeditated. They were aiming for either an insanity plea or a second-degree murder conviction to spare him the death penalty. The deputy district attorney suggested that Stewart's motive in taping the incident was to make a snuff film, sell it to the news media, and then hire Johnny Cochran to help him get away with it. Like, that's any better? Like, well, they were saying that, basically, the defense was saying it couldn't be premeditated because he put up the cameras. Why would he put up the cameras if he was planning to shoot them? And that he called the police for assistance. Why would he call the police for assistance if he was planning to shoot them? 
And then the, the prosecution was arguing he put up the cameras to videotape himself shooting them. And he was not worried about there being evidence that he was shooting them because he was going to position himself as this oppressed businessman pushed over the edge, which is how he presented his defense. All in all, if you put up cameras and you do this in front of the cameras, it's on camera. Yeah, totally. I think like the, the big argument was really about the motivation for putting up the cameras because they were trying to prove intent. Stewart was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder in October of 2004. My notes say murder <laughs> on accident. It's just a typo. <laughs> he was transferred to San Quentin Prison, and once he was in San Quentin, his mental health deteriorated significantly. He began smearing feces on his cell walls and having major breakdowns. That's one thing that can forward the insanity plea. It's been said people shit in their hands in the court and throw feces around the courtroom and his stuff conviction. like that. Yeah, but it still can well, get him an insanity no, plea. No, it if can't because he's already been convicted. So he, when he was in jail at Santa Rita, he was doing his like performance cool guy thing, and he was fine. And he looked like he actually looked like himself throughout trial. Then when he once he was convicted before his sentencing, he was transferred to San Quentin. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, he's in San Quentin. His mental health just takes this massive nosedive. But what I'm saying is that doesn't happen. Is that like he he went crazy when he was in jail and started throwing feces around? Never had never thrown feces around his happens. whole entire life. Of course life that happens. Okay. No, yeah, that like happens. I mean, that happens in like, in prison all the time. Uh, Prison destroys people's mental health. And he moved from thinking that he might not be convicted and being in a county jail to moving into one of the most notorious prisons on the West Coast, if not yeah, the nation. Yeah, no, no, of, of course, but you're, but, okay. So what I'm saying is he went from thinking things might be okay. He really thought that he had the feds, just like he thought the whole time that he was going to convince everybody that he was being harassed. He really thought, through all of the hardships that he felt like he was enduring with the health inspectors, he thought that one day someone was going to see that he was really the victim in all of this and they were really the antagonist. And so when he got up against that wall that they were like, we will shut you down permanently. You have violated the law too many ways too many times and we're going to shut you down permanently. Once he came up against that wall, that was when he shot them. Then he goes to jail and he's on trial and he's got these four years that's a very long time to be in jail yeah but he's still doing okay because he thinks that there's a way out because he thinks that once he tells a jury that he's you know the victim in all of this and he was just pushed over the edge they're going to understand and they're going to see and he's going to be vindicated and he's going to get out and once he comes up against the wall of conviction he's not going to get out he's not going to be vindicated yeah. they're not going to find out that's when that pull. he's the victim that's when he really had a mental breakdown that's when you pull the wild card and try and act as crazy as hell to get that insanity plea the insanity to get out of there he doesn't have that's not an option for him legally that's not an option he's convicted you you try anything you can Maybe, maybe. I don't think so. I don't maybe. think that's what happened at all. I think he was truly mentally, I think he came truly mentally unglued at that point. There's no evidence okay. to believe that he thought that there would be any legal benefit to it at Everything all. was was hard with his girlfriends and beating up the old guy and everything like that. But when this, this happens, I, I feel like it was like a last attempt to maybe grasp something I, that can probably... I could not disagree with you more. People who are in prison... Mm -hmm frequently have mental breakdowns and 
and they have behaviors like smearing feces on the wall. For some people, that is a political choice that they make, like the hunger strikers in the Bobby Sands hunger strike. But for many people, they really, it, prison is a barbaric place. People are treated very badly. People come in, and they're not doing well, and they get worse. Yeah. In this instance, there's no evidence to believe that he was faking it or this was some type of a ploy. He was convicted. He wasn't getting out of being convicted. He, there, no amount of craziness was going to save him from anything at this point. He's suicidal. He's yeah. being, and he's being. Well, well, well okay. Well, then, the bottom line, there's nothing else. So why not just throw feces around? I like, don't think that's and, it either. And, yeah. I don't think that's it either. I think he was having. I think he was truly having a breakdown because again, he finally hit the wall where he was not going to be vindicated like he had always expected. Yeah. Okay. And then. So then he, but then he has his sentencing, and that's going to be several months. So he was convicted in October of 2004, mm -hmm. and then he had to move into the sentencing phase of his trial. He wasn't sentenced until February. Stewart was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder in October 2004. He's transferred to San Quentin Prison, and his mental health deteriorates. He's put on suicide watch at this point, and he's prescribed antipsychotics. He's being interviewed or seen and treated by prison psychologists regularly. And he's in a very, very bad place. Oh, this yeah. Is, this is something that is corroborated by everyone. The prosecution. The, it was actually the, the one of the reasons that I would say for sure this is not a ploy is it's the district attorney in the interview that is like he, he was struggling. He went to a really bad place. He started smearing feces on the walls of his cell. He started being seen by prison psychologists. He was prescribed antipsychotics. That was actually the district attorney. So if that benefited him in any way, the district attorney wouldn't be talking about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a ploy at all, yeah. He's be put on these antipsychotics. Antipsychotics have pretty extreme side effects, and a lot of them have to do with health. One of the side effects that you can see visibly is that in this short period of time from October to February, Stuart goes from being a really thin person to being a real big guy. And that in the, the span of, like, five months. He, his weight shifts by, I would guess, something close to 70 pounds. He gained a lot of weight from the antipsychotics. His skin looks different. His general demeanor is different. He's like, he's like it's kind of weird to say. He's like shinier and greasier. He just looks sicker. He doesn't look good. And then his, he's reporting to his defense attorneys that he's having all of these other health side effects from the antipsychotics. In February, he's sentenced to death by lethal injection. His suicide watch started from pretty much when he got into San Quentin until he died in December of that year. In February, he was sentenced to death by lethal injection, and then on December 27th, he died of a pulmonary embolism. And it's kind of implied by his defense attorneys that his failing health in having to do with being on antipsychotics played a role in that pulmonary embolism. I can't say. I didn't do the autopsy, and I'm not a doctor. But... Anyway, he just, I, in my notes I say, he had noticeably gained weight and le generally looked bad. He just looked bad, but there was a huge change from when he was in the trial portion to when he was in the sentencing portion. A couple of other notes about Stuart Alexander. Under questioning by prosecution during trial, his ex-girlfriend Charlotte Knapp said she didn't like him anymore. She said he videotaped the two of them one night when they had sex in his office and then showed the videotape to friends. 
She said he had assured her at the time that the surveillance camera in his office wasn't working, and she hadn't given him permission to tape their lovemaking or show the tape to anyone. Afterwards, his defense lawyer, this, so this is during his trial, the defense lawyer, who comes across in interviews as being like a really nice guy and like really sympathetic to Stewart and whatever, he showed her a 13-page transcript of an online conversation she had with Stewart, literally her boyfriend, and she had to admit that sometimes she initiated sexual activity with him on the stand. Wow. Like, well, yeah, it's her on-again, off-again boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Like, hello. And she did say in the trial, I don't know what this has to do with him killing all those people. Which, yeah, what does it have to do with him killing all those people? Except that he's slimy. He's a slimy guy. There were a couple other things that I thought were of note about him being a shitty boyfriend. He had, when he was, this is old, so this, but still, shitty boyfriend. When he was 19, he had a girlfriend who was 15 years old, and they were, they were having sex. And she said that she avoided his father because his father was always yelling at him. She didn't want to go over to their house because Tweety was always yelling at Stuart. She was scared. So she would sneak into his bedroom window and sometimes they would both sneak out off the balcony when his dad came home because mm -hmm. they, did, they just didn't want to see his dad. That's how nasty his dad was. Yeah. He would sneak out of his own house to not cross paths with his dad oh, after yeah. he was already 19. Been there. She also said he was a good boyfriend and that he would send me flowers and take me out to dinners and stuff. And he gave her a diamond ring and she was really in awe of it. And then she said... He was not a good boyfriend, because I think he was dating a lot of other girls at the time. Oh, this guy. She also passed out drunk at his house once. Again, she's 15, he's 19. She passed out drunk at his house once, and he woke her up by throwing cold water on her. And then he drove her home, covered it. She was still wet. He didn't give her anything to change into. He drove her home. What a dick. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. So that was Stuart Alexander, the Sausage King of San Leandro. Hey, I need to apologize to you because in our first episode, you said you wanted to do a, a podcast on the Sausage King of San Leandro, and I kind of was like, well, maybe that's a mini-sode. Like, that's not going to be a lot of information, and then as soon as I started looking into this, it was like, oh, just like, like so much information, so many details. I didn't even find the details about the secretary until I was almost done. And then I dug up a couple of, like, court reporters about the civil suit. And then I had to dig into her further and, of course, like, stalk her on social media and find out if she's still cute. And she is. But anyway, so I apologize. It was totally a full episode. No, it just, like, spider webs out once you start reading about it and learning more. We actually had one set up, and it was a going to be the second podcast and for some reason it just didn't feel right we also ended up with bad audio we did then the audio really sucked and so lauren went back on did more research she did more research and found out a bit more about it and more about the secretary and so let me give my sources for everything there's no as far as i know there are no books written about this. I couldn't find anything. There are two episodes of documentary style shows. One I was able to watch, one I was not. The one I was able to watch was Fatal Encounters. It's uh, season one, episode three, I think. Feel free to watch it. It's a dramatic retelling. It has Jean Hillary's daughter in it, which I feel like is nice okay. because there's some focus on the victims here. They don't focus on the other inspectors too much, but I'll tell you 
that um, William Shalene was supposed to have had a very close relationship with his kids, and Tom Quadros was a volunteer baseball coach and umpire. They were all, all these inspectors were in their fifties, and so they had they had lives and families, and most of them had grandkids. I think. I don't know. I feel a lot for Jean, and I don't know if listeners felt a lot, but I was like, why did she have to die? She did a lot, and it's so hard for women to mm-hmm. break into. Jobs of this caliber, you know, yeah, the glass ceiling and everything. And I was just like, oh, man, like she was just starting out. She tried so hard and she got that position. And then she worked so hard for that position. Yeah. She had waited so long in her life to have something for herself, to have a career for herself. And she finally was getting some success. And then this happens. I'll also say about Jean, she was a volunteer swim instructor throughout her children's childhoods. Wow. And she was really well known in the community with all the local kids to the point that other people's kids also called her mom. Oh. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Brutal. So while I was researching this, I came across a lot of people throughout history that have called themselves sausage kings. It turns out that's like a whole thing. There's even this big festival in Austin, Texas, where called the Sausage Kings of Austin, where there's like a cook-off. But also, it turns out s- sausages and people who make them get wrapped up in murder. What seems like a statistically unusual amount of the time, and so we have some more. This is the first of an ongoing series about Sausage Kings. We're probably going to find new cases, so I don't want to say we're just going to run them all together. But we're, we have a few in the works. And um, one of them is Adolf uh, Lut- Lutger, as I believe how you pronounce his name. He was the Sausage King of Chicago, and he murdered his wife in the factory. So that is going to be a case that we're going to cover. That's interesting. Don't look it up. Give me a minute to do the research. And then... There was the Sausage King in Russia who was murdered with a crossbow. Uh-huh. We're going to cover that. Yeah. Is there a German Sausage There's King There's a German too? Sausage King. He doesn't, as far as I know, he doesn't have any murders tied to him, but he does have some criminal enterprise. So we might cover the Russian Sausage King case is still open. It's a somewhat cold case. There's still suspects that they're looking for. Not a lot of details yet. So maybe we'll tie those two together. And then we have our first big case in the works. He's not referred to as a sausage king, but I feel like he really falls into this category. Robert Willie picked in. Yes. And so just today, I got my first book to start research on this. I already know a little bit about the case. I'm hoping that we can talk to some folks and give a little bit of an inside scoop about what it was like in Vancouver at the time. So we'll be pulling that together in the upcoming weeks for you. We're also going to try and get some bonus content on the Patreon Shout out Patreon, patreon.com slash ACA body bag. Our tiers are super cheap. Even when I was making them, Patreon was said, you should make these cost more money. And I said, no. I said, no, Patreon. Yeah, we, we, we feel you. And we just want to give you some really cool shit to listen to for not a lot of money. And uh, what we're sending out, it's not going to be generally food oriented. But for now, you know, there's some butchers in there. So it's really fun to talk about. But we want to hit everything. Yeah, we've got all kinds of things in the works and not any not any real amount of time to do any of it. But we'll just keep plugging away at it. I have too many books. It turns out I have way too many books. I frequently purge my, when I say frequently, I mean frequently to me every few years. I purge my books. And I still have too many books when it's all done. So 
So as I accumulate true crime books, it is not my intention to have a true crime library. I don't want one. And so what we did was we put up a wish list on Amazon. If people do want to send us true crime books through the Amazon wish list, if you send us the book, we'll cover the case. And we'll do additional research besides the book to cover the case. And then when it's done, I don't want to keep the book. It will not spark joy for me anymore. And so what we're going to do is to the higher tiers of our Patreon subscribers, we're going to do little drawings and we're going to send books back to you. We will sign the books personally. It's not like us. an autograph. We're just going to write you a cute note. I'll draw maybe a little picture. He draws pretty cute pictures. Stick figure or something. You should draw him an alligator. I like the way you draw alligators. There we go. I'll draw an alligator. Yeah. Or draw a sausage king. Draw a little guy with a little sausage on a stick mm -hmm. and a crown. I, I don't want to brand us too hard with the sausage kings, but now that we've done this case, I'm on a sausage king roll. Yeah, definitely. And I'm hungry. So you can find us on Twitter at... Always carry a body no. bag. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at... <laughs> You always pop me out A-C-A-B-B. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at A-C-A Body Bag. You can find us on Instagram at A-C-A Body Bag. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash A-C-A Body Bag. You can write us an email at A-C-A Body Bag at gmail.com Okay, I'm going to remember that from now on. Alright. Thank you for listening. Magusta Languisa. <laughs> Hail Chris Dorner. <laughs>